All right, well, Justin mentioned he is headed out to vacation, and we've decided to give him a little bit of a rest, and it's a well-deserved rest. Justin, thank you for your, uh, your time and your service. Uh, situation this morning is we're continuing in our study of an Old Testament series of Old Testament prophets. Brandon started that for us last week. The complication this morning is, is how far removed we are from the setting of some of these ancient texts, particularly as it relates to Joel. And so the implication for, for modern readers, modern students of that letter is we have to reframe. And we have to reframe the way that we think about some very big themes like sin and judgment, repentance and mercy. And after spending several weeks, maybe months studying this text, my position is that we really are far too comfortable uh, in our modern lives and in our modern routine. And those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but they can become a fog, right? even a delusion uh, to some ultimate realities that Scripture holds out to us. And so I'm asking you today to retrace with me some of these big themes and to evaluate, right? Is your mindset out of step with Joel's teaching and Joel's message. And the benefit to you really could be, should be profound, because they go to the very purpose for which you and I were both created, uh, which is intimacy, right? intimacy with God. Joel's a God-centered book. It is unapologetically centered on the primacy and the holiness of God. And it also highlights the complexity and the depth of God's character because it holds out hope and the prospect of intimacy right there in the same vein, right, as holiness and judgment. But the the scripture, Joel's message, is really clear that the path to that intimacy is penitence, right? To be clear, penitence is not the same thing as as penance, right? So penitence, three, three syllables, that's the idea that my whole posture, right, all of my uh, speech, all of the things that I do and say, everything about me, I reform, I shape, and I change out of reverence for God, right, and out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Penance, two syllables, that's working off a of sin debt, right? It's, it's punishment, it's something that I do, right, to right the scales, it's the action itself. So I want to be very clear that what we're talking about is penitence, right? It's the attitude and the posture of the heart. And so we'll come back to that point on penitence, but it's only after we begin to understand some of God's sovereign purpose on disaster, judgment, and mercy as these things are laid out in Joel. Now, to be fair, there, there is little that's known for certain about Joel himself or the precise setting of his, of his message. For instance, whether it was before or after the exile that the Israelites went through or who the king was, some of those details are just not certain. But, but what's clear is the book is just loaded with content in those three chapters. It's only, only a three-chapter book. And so we're going to survey all of that today, and then we'll wrap up in Acts. But let's start first with God's purpose over disaster. That's in chapter 1. And that's where Joel begins his book, right? He starts out contemplating something that's obvious. Everybody sees it, right? Everybody in the culture says, gee, we have a locust plague. And you might have seen headlines if you've been online at all, but in India and Africa right now, there there is a massive locust plague going on that has not been seen in, say, 30-plus years. And if you look at those clips, the, the ground moves. There are so many of them. Or like the tree bark just 
twists. There are so many of these things. So there is an horrific level of of this locust plague. And Scripture um, highlights the layers, right? It's one after the other. So one eats the plants, the other eats the bark, the third one eats the tree. It's just total devastation, utter ruin, right, for the crops, the grain in particular. And so, you know, Joel wants people to understand, yeah, it's bad, but he wants them to understand this is without compare. This is uniquely bad. This is something that hasn't been seen in generations and may not be seen again, may not be seen again. It is unique in its level uh, of, of catastrophe, right? He wants them to understand the depth of what this, this plague is bringing. Now, our modern minds, you know, when we start hearing about locust plagues, it sounds like Charlton Heston, and it sounds very you know, removed from our very uh, current modern culture. And so we have to ask the, the question, well, what's the big deal? Yeah, they're bugs. Did nobody have the number for Terminex, right? Just call the bug guy, right? We'll, we'll deal with it. Um, but if we go back, right, we put ourselves in context. Something in the neighborhood of 2,500 years ago, give or take, uh, it was an agrarian lifestyle. So if your crops are utterly ruined, right, that goes to your livelihood. It goes to your food supply, and ultimately to your health. So there there are very real threats to, do we have a job? Do we have food? Am I going to survive? Those are the types of implications that this locust plague raises, and it raised for the people of Judah. And so a few months into COVID, I don't know that we're quite as in dire straits as they are, but we can empathize just a little bit. And if you think about friends or family or folks you work with, or maybe it's you yourself, Uh, Those same questions on, is this disease going to be treated? Is it cured? Is it going to result in a layoff? Uh, What are we going to do about the economic damage? All of those same types of questions pose the same types of threats, livelihood, health, security. So we can have a little bit of empathy for them. What's worse, right, to, and it continues to build, right, this is just a, it's a steady stream of bad news. Uh, as a result of the disruption and the fact that there's no grain, there's no wine, and neither of those things are available for the temple worship. And so there's a sense of alienation and disruption, and I can't even call out to the Lord and approach him the same way that I have before for these Israelites, right? So it's bad, it's dark, it's uncertain, and I'm alienated from God. And scripture says that the priest mourned because they recognized that that separation was there. Joel continues to press the point and says, this is, this is bad now, and there is the prospect of another judgment that's coming, an army uh, that, that's worse. And so there's a present disaster, and then Joel, as a prophet, is looking forward into the future and say, there, there is an army, and it's, it's unstoppable. There's a lot of imagery around fire and scorched earth, and they just run roughshod over any sort of defense, just straight up and over the wall, through the windows, into the house. It's just utter devastation, and the defenses are meaningless. And he says, guess what? That's coming. So as bad as things are, it's going to get worse. And here's the punchline. Here's the punchline that Joel wants them to understand, the key parallel between both of those disasters, is that God, the Lord himself, engineered and brought about both of them. And uh, you don't necessarily have to go there, but I'll read you a couple of texts. So in chapter 2, the Lord refers to the locusts as my great army, which I sent among you. And then he refers to the future army and says, the Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great, and he who executes his word is powerful. And so 
if the Lord sent the locusts in the army, then we have to ask why. Why? And to make it a little more personal, what is your health and your livelihood and your job if you know that they're gone, that they're at risk, and the Lord himself took them away? He did it. And that's a painful, heavy question. Those sorts of situations, I think, will awaken any of us from the illusion that we're independent people. Right? That my, my resources, my plans, my routines, my savings, whatever it is, my resources are going to get me through because they can change, right? Just like that, if the Lord decides to take them away. And that message is true throughout Scripture, if you think about Job, for instance. So beyond sort of awakening us and them from a sense of independence, and we're not, uh, it's also hopeless, right? If you're in those dire straits, you have no way to deal with it, no way out of it, that, that's not um, exaggeration to call it a hopeless situation because there is nothing that you or I or we can do to climb out. And, and for that reason, it's hopeless. And so we say, well, gee, what, what is the point, God, of, of stark doom and gloom reality that you brought about for which I've got no recourse? Right? That's the kind of question, that's the purpose in disaster where God was, is awakening, I think, both them and us. Uh, to the reality of what disaster is. But we'll come back to the answer on why. Why would God do it? But first we need to look at judgment, right? So that's disaster. Disaster awakens us from independence and to our hopelessness. Let's go to judgment now. So the Lord gives Joel a future vis- vision in chapter 3 of judgment. And I'll say right up front, this is, this is a real, literal, all of humankind sort of judgment before God. It's not metaphorical. It's not symbolic. Joel is speaking of a real judgment. And so Scripture tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, that the Lord, quote, will enter into judgment with all of the nations of the earth in a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That word, if you do the word study on Jehoshaphat, has the idea of verdict. And so if you think about a court case where you're the defendant, right, the the plaintiffs have brought out all the evidence of your uh, crime, whatever it is that you've committed. You've mounted the best defense you can. The jury's been sent away. They've made a decision, they've come back, and they've handed that verdict to the judge, and there's no more appeal at this point. There's nothing left to say. That's all beside the point, and the only thing that remains is to open up and to read the verdict. That's the idea of the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The word means decision or verdict, and it's final, right? There's no appeal process here. This is final, final judgment. And the imagery of judgment, right, to continue pressing this a little bit, one is a sickle, so it's a cutting, right, a cutting and a separating and a breaking of uh, the grain, and the other is, is a wine press where you put all the grapes in the threshing floor and you step on them and they break in two and they just run out and they burst, right? So that idea of cutting and pulping, that's the imagery that God gives of this day of judgment. There are some specific acts, some specific sins that are listed as the reason for the judgment, and it's not an exhaustive list, but things like slavery, child trafficking, prostitution. It says their wickedness is great. And so all of the nations are brought to account in this judgment that Joel sees. And the judgment is not about rehabilitation. The idea is retribution. It is an offsetting of a wrong committed through the act of punishment. And the Lord actually says, I will return on their heads these same sins that they have committed. So it is, it is harsh and it is weighty And it is all about justice before a holy God. 
And so it's at this point, and you may have had conversations with people like this, but a skeptic, a non-believer, somebody may say, well, it's just an outmoded concept. It's cruel. It's harsh. And if your God really is all-powerful and all-loving, then you guys talk about forgiveness. Why can't he just forgive? Right? And so for that reason, I can't go with you. Right? This is just fire and brimstone, and it's ancient, and it's hateful, and it's all of those sorts of things, and I just reject it because that idea of holy judgment and final separation is just not where I'm going to go. It's actually a good question, and Scripture doesn't shy away from it at all. Right? It's not as if we or Scripture are cowed by that kind of question. Uh, because moral offenses impose a cost, and this is true all throughout Scripture. But the only question is who bears it. Right? So is it the perpetrator, the individual that committed the offense or the crime or the sin, or the person who received it? You know, the wrong was done against me. Maybe there's a third party. But it, those types of offenses impose a cost. And so a very real and, I think, appropriate illustration came to mind as I was thinking about this. Uh, about a year ago, Shannon and I got to go to Israel with the tour that was led by Dennis Newkirk, and the Jacksons came as well. And our guide took us to a children's memorial at a place called Yad Vashem, and it's in Jerusalem, and it's carved into a mountainside, a place called Mount Herzl. And so they're sort of soft, rolling, small mountains, and they've, they've just carved inside, so you're underground under this, this mountain. And as you walk in, it's pitch black, and there's a little bit of lighting you know, along the footpath so you know where you're going and you don't trip. But other than that, it's pitch black. And you round a corner in this big room, kind of this underground cavern sort of thing, uh, opens up and there are these pinpricks of light all over the place. Uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of them, and there's some sort of refracting mechanism, I suppose, that they've set up where the light shines on something, and it's sort of like stars at night from the mountaintop, right? Innumerable. You can't count them. The point of the memorial, and you start hearing some of this in the backdrop, and they're reading names, uh, it's, it's the children who were murdered in the Holocaust. Right, 1.5 million. So these are not, um, excuse me, they're not soldiers, they're not adults, you know, nobody who can mount a defense. Kids. Uh, the couple that paid for this, their parents, this was in the 1950s, uh, they lost a two-and-a-half-year-old son. Right, two-and-a-half. Anyway, excuse me. And none of my dry runs, I, this didn't happen. So, um, But as you go through that, you, you absolutely get a sense of moral outrage. Uh, painful, agony, loss. And that's just innate, right? I don't have to be persuaded that this is wrong. Uh, Paul addresses this truth, and it's in Romans chapter 1, where he explains that there is a basic knowledge about God, and that's where this sense of right and wrong comes from. Right? It is, it's plain to everyone. Scripture says that. Believer, non-believer, we all have this imprinted knowledge of a holy God. And things like tragedy and injustice and crimes awaken it. Right, so to answer the, the skeptic's question right, about why must there be judgment, God could not speak to those murdered children and said, you know what, let's let it go. 
you know, to the families or to the parents, no big deal, right? We'll just let bygones be bygones, right? It is an act of love for God to avenge the wrong. It is absolutely an act of righteousness and justice as well. Right? So the wrongs need to be atoned. We know that. Whether we admit it or not, that truth is there. Everyone recognizes injustice. It's easy to see. And the same is true if there is to be reconciliation, which, which is no guarantee, but the wrong has to be acknowledged. And it needs to be atoned for just to open up the possibility that the one who committed the offense and the one who was harmed, that maybe, maybe they'll reconcile, but only when justice, right, is uh, satisfied. So that then leads to the question, okay, gee, I get, that idea, the, I get the idea that God has a purpose in disaster, and I sort of understand the, the cry for justice. You know, I'm on the fence, but at least I understand the argument. Uh, it's all bad news. Where's the mercy? Where's the mercy, and is there any hope in this? Joel desperately wants us to recognize, whether we're in a current disaster or the prospect of a future one, that every day that we live, every hour that we're given prior to that final judgment is an act of mercy. We have to wake up from a sense of this routine is the only reality that exists, and therefore I'm just going to keep doing what I've always been doing. God may occasionally intervene with disaster. He may send something like COVID. Say, well, you know, I wonder if God's talking to us. Well, of course he is. Of course he is. That's no different than any other day, right? Because there is a call to wake up from that sense of lethargy and routine to the fact that crimes and injustices and sin and all of these things have to be addressed, and there is a final judgment coming. And so you can put people into two camps, I think this is fair. There are people who know I am accountable to God. And there are people who will know that they are accountable to God. And that's it. It's going to come one way or the other, now or at the act of judgment. This um, lethargy that I've talked about, this routine, this fog, um, I I was thinking a little bit about there's a section in The Hobbit, one of my favorite books, uh, not Lord of the Rings, but the, The Hobbit, the first one, You might remember Bilbo and his uh, dwarf companions. They're on a trip, and they enter into a place called Mirkwood. Mirkwood. Sounds murky, right? But it's a forest, right? It's a very deep, dense forest. Visibility is reduced. Uh, They can't see. They're lost. They're off of their path, and they don't know where to go. To make matters worse, the big, huge, fat dwarf, his name is Bomber, uh, has fallen into a magic stream, and he's comatose. And so this huge, fat dwarf has to be carried by the rest of them in this hopeless, lost, don't-know-where-I'm-going-to-go kind of context. And so somebody gets the idea, well, let's, let's send Bilbo up a tree to the top and see if he can poke his head out above the leaves to regain our bearings, to figure out where it is we need to go. And I'll read you a short quote. In the end, he poked his head up above the leaves... And Bilbo's eyes were nearly blinded by the light. He could hear the dwarf shouting up at him from far below, but he could not answer. He could only hold on and blink. The sun was shining brilliantly, and it was a long while before he could bear it. Uh, The point here, right? Mercy comes in baby steps. When light blinds us, when light blinds an unbeliever, it can be painful. Right? 
It can cause hurt internal to recognize the fact that I'm accountable to a holy God and that what I've done and the things I've said offend a holy God. Right? That is an act of mercy. That's where it begins because when that awareness dawns, it opens up the path and the possibility of repentance and reconciliation. It doesn't guarantee it. But the point is you can't repent unless you know that you're accountable to God and that you have wronged the Lord. And that's the idea, right, of the blinding, piercing light. Right? It's, it is a mercy. It is an act and a, a very important one from which reconciliation might take place. Right? And so Joel desperately wants people to hear something critical at this point, right? At that blinding moment, awareness, awakening has begun to occur. And Joel says some very important things. As a prophet, he's going to speak in the first person for the Lord. And that, that's a bold thing to do. This is what he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. So the rending of the garment was a ceremonial act. If if I wanted to appear contrite and broken, then I just ripped clothes. And therefore, because it's an act, it's prone to hypocrisy. And God says, keep your clothes. Break your heart, rend your heart. Now Joel steps away from that. He's spoken directly as the mouthpiece of God, and he says to the people of Judea, this is him explaining something about the Lord, return to the Lord your God, and here's why. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Right? And what we need to understand here is those qualities, patience, love, steadfast love, those originate in the heart of God the same way that justice does. And that's key, right? It is not as if you or I or anyone else prevails upon God. God, give us a second chance, please. And he sort of grudgingly said, yeah, okay, maybe. Right? We, we don't persuade him in this. this. This is innate. This is intrinsic to the heart of God. Justice and mercy. And because it is resident in God's heart, he moves to call people to repentance. And so th- this is where the promise of intimacy sort of comes in, and this, this will blow your mind, right? So that God has made provision, and he invites people with mercy, and he goes beyond it, right? This is where Joel's prophecy just becomes sweet. Uh, and this is in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and I think it's on your notes if you have a copy there. Uh, but Joel says, speaking for the Lord, and it shall come to pass afterward that I, the Lord, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And so what God is promising here is a new way to relate to you and me, right, to people. Up to this point, we relate, the, the, the Jewish Folks would relate to the Lord through the temple and priests and sacrifice. And he's saying that there, there is a new covenant. There is a new relationship coming where the very spirit of God is now joined with man. And so you have access not only to God's mercy, but to his fellowship. And it's personal, right? It is on our flesh. It's an incredible promise that Joel gives under the inspiration of God himself. Let me take a step back. So I've been reading a lot about Joel and Acts 
because Peter picks up this same prophecy. Uh, you can rest assured that Peter's commentary on Joel is probably the best one, right? Peter speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to explain the Holy Spirit, right? And so you can trust what Peter is going to say to us here. Um, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll read a little bit more. Uh, we'll start in verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14. But to set the context, so Christ has been crucified, he's been resurrected, he spent 40 days presenting himself to people to say, I've been resurrected, right? And that reality and that truth is common knowledge at this point, and he ascended. But before he did, he told the disciples, go and wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit's going to be given. And so that's what they've done, right? They've just been waiting in Jerusalem for this promise to occur, and it did. Scripture tells us in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 that when the Spirit came, it was miraculous. It sounded like a rushing wind. didn't say it was a rushing wind. just said it sounded like it. And there was something like fire, right, that was visible that came and rested on the 12 disciples, and it enabled them to speak in foreign languages, right? So that the people in the city, it was a cosmopolitan mix of people at that time, could understand what they were saying about the gospel. And so they're seeing this, and it's, you know, it's not your everyday trip down to the market. And so they're looking for meaning. What in the world is going on? And there are some scoffers, as Peter will address. But people are looking for meaning, and that's the context. That's the setting for which Peter now steps up to comment, to explain what Joel prophesied. So read with me. We'll start in verse 14. But Peter... Standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's nine in the morning, right? So the scoffers said, well, maybe they're drunk. They sound, they sound funny. Like, no, no, no. That's not what's happening. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he quotes Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants, my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they will prophesy. Drop down now to verse 22. This is Peter's commentary. This is Peter's explanation of what Joel said. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's a reference to the Romans, right? The crucifixion. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then one more verse in 33. Drop down to verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's talking about Jesus now, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. And so we need to look a little bit at what Peter is saying. Uh, First of all, Peter is equating the Christ of Acts 2.33 with the Lord of Joel 2 as the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. Right? So the way that this works, Peter teaches Christ was raised to life, and he says this in verse 24, right? having undergone crucifixion for your sins and mine, he was raised to life 
Why? Because it was impossible for death to hold him. That's a great explanation. It's not so much weird that Christ was resurrected as it is that he was dead. It's impossible for Christ to be dead. It's not in his nature to be dead. And so he arose. He completed the atonement on which our whole Christian faith is based. And as a result, it says he was exalted. Right? So there's the Father and the right-hand side of the Father. That's the place of exaltation as a result of his work and what he's accomplished. And the sequence is all of that was necessary, right? The resurrection, the crucifixion, the exaltation, because now at this point, God the Father gives, in some sense, the Holy Spirit to the Son because he's qualified. And he pours out the Spirit, right, on you and me. And so Peter is saying, when you look back at what Joel prophesied that the Spirit would be given, here's what it took. Right? There was just pregnant meaning in Joel's words that in order for God the Father to pour out the Spirit, to provide the intimacy, it required the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Peter's audience were cut to the heart, Scripture says, when they heard that their part in this was to murder the Messiah. And so they asked, what, what should we do? Not unlike the people of Joel that we just talked about, they're in a disaster, they're in a hopeless situation. What, what should we do? And Peter's message and Joel's message is that you need to repent. Right? To cultivate a lifestyle of penitence. This is not a one-off. This is not just, I, I repented of a specific sin and I'm done. This is a lifestyle of penitence so that, again, everything that I say and do, the places that I go, the things that I see, the conversations that I engage in, those are all shifting and shaping and conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus because he's worth it. So this begs the question, what are your affections, right? What are the things that in your mind, in your spare time, the conversations, the things that you do, where do your affections take you? Do they draw you closer to the Lord Jesus or do they push you further away? And perhaps worse yet, do they just cause you to forget him, right, if you're preoccupied? Just like the people that Peter addressed, those of us that run around indifferent to the reality of sin and judgment and salvation in the world and its future judgment, right? if we're indifferent to those things, then we too should be cut to the heart. Mourning, fasting, weeping, those are appropriate, right, if they're genuine. And so I'll, I'll press here just for a moment. When's the last time that tears welled up in your eyes over sin? And I'm not talking about just self-loathing, sort of I get down on myself and I've got low self-esteem. That's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's where the Spirit has awakened in you. You've sinned, and this grieves the Lord himself. He's grieved by your action, and that's why you cry. That's why you would say, no, I, I, I don't want to go out to eat. I don't feel like eating right now, fasting. Because I've come to terms with sin. And so here, here's maybe a little bit to twist the screws, and I include myself in this. If you and if I can't remember tears welling up over sin, we can't remember the last time that we needed to fast over sin, 
there's probably two explanations. One is you just didn't sin. That's probably not it, right? So behind door number two, man, this is bad. We're just numb to it. All right, we're just numb to it. So let's go back now to the, uh, the vision of judgment in Joel chapter 3, where sin will be dealt with. It absolutely be dealt with. Joel explains in Joel chapter 3, and this is verse 16, that the same Lord who roars in judgment from Zion is also a refuge to his people, right? One verse, two concepts, roaring in judgment, refuge for others. Now, it's probably safe to say nobody in the room has committed sin on the level of the Holocaust, right? And sin differs in the sense of consequence and visibility. That stuff is different. None of it differs in the sense that sin separates us from the Lord and transgresses His holy character. So your secret sins, my secret sins, the things that we don't want to talk about in polite company, those sins have to be judged. They have to be atoned for. So in that sense, every single one of us is accountable to the Lord for sin. And this is, I think, where you can boil down the heart of the gospel, as one commentator did, is that every single one of us needs to be protected from God by God. I'll say that again. We need to be protected from the holiness and the wrath of God. But praise the Lord, he protects us from it. So apart from the gospel, the day of the Lord will be a final verdict in the valley of Jehoshaphat, utter separation from the Lord for some, and it will be a refuge for others. And Scripture, chapter 2, verse 32, says those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? It's available. But that dichotomy of refuge and roaring judgment, that exists only because of the mercy of God that's part of his character. Right? He's the one who holds out both truths to us. The same God who promised this spirit in Joel and who promised judgment in Joel is the same God who stands in your place as the condemned, the Lord Jesus and his crucifixion. And so he will be a judge or he will be a savior and he will be both to a mixture of people. Right? He will sort out the wheat from the tares, the sheep and the goats. Right? Both of those things go together, and this truth is all throughout the New Testament. I'll pick one verse, Romans 3, 24 and 25, and most of this probably sounds familiar. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Wonderful news. Right? But here's the cost. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So there is no sense in which justice doesn't occur. It's not as if God says, you know what, it's okay. Your sins and my sins are judged. That's the concept of propitiation, is the wheels of justice turn and are satisfied. Christ will absorb and has absorbed your judgment so that you can absorb his righteousness. Right? Do you see that swap? You see what he provides in that? So that we can grow in this intimate relationship with our creator that he makes available as a result of the work of Jesus. So if you're, if you're not a believer, and this all sounds foreign and it sounds 
biblical, for lack of a better term. Um, it's real, right? So the fact that it's unfamiliar or that feels strange in our culture doesn't make it any less true. Right? And if that's you, you need to think long and hard on these truths, and we would be thrilled to speak with you, whether it's me or anyone else in Grace Church, anyone else who names the name of Jesus as their Savior, we'd be glad to share more of this truth. If you're a believer in Christ, right, it's not as if all the pressure is off in some sense and we're good, right? No, no. We continue to press on and to reform our lives through penitence because we want to grow in the intimacy that the Lord holds out to us. Right? And that that only grows and deepens when we take responsibility for our sin and to cultivate penitence. One of the um, verses that came to mind, I'll speak on just briefly in Colossians as we wrap up here. Um, just think a little bit about what you've seen on the news the last week or two, uh, at least in my lifetime. This is as ugly and as uh, fractured and as hateful and as uncertain uh, a time as I can remember. I'm 43. Some of you are older than I. Uh, economy's in shambles. There's a disease that we don't know if it'll be cured, right? It's, it's a mess, right? Humanity is producing a mess, and so there's an inclination in many corners to, to, to take sides and to persuade. Most of that, I'll venture to guess, is probably misguided or a little off the mark. And so this scripture, I think, is so appropriate where Paul is addressing a mixed church. And I say mixed, just culturally, just different backgrounds. Um, he says we all are putting off old practices and putting on Christ. All right, so I don't persuade you that I'm right and you're wrong and you join my camp. And you don't do the same thing for me. Right? All of us are putting off old practices. And the, the language there is ongoing. Putting. Right? We didn't put it off and we're good. We are putting off old practices. Putting on Christ. Right? So just imagine the impact. Right? If the church of Jesus Christ resolved itself to put on Christ as our highest goal. And I'm not talking about sentimentalism here, where um, it's sort of this mixture of what we want things to be, right? If we are putting on Christ, we are going to hold out truth, judgment, sin, mercy, hope, grace. And we're not concerned with winning the argument as much as we are glorifying the Lord Jesus and holding forth the truth and the grace that he provides That is where we move. That is where our hearts and our minds conform rather than persuading somebody else that we're right or wrong. So as we pray here, as we end our time, I'll ask the question, which pet sin stands between you and the Lord in a greater intimacy? Because he will not and does not negotiate those things. Yes, Christian, keep your sin. It's okay. We'll, We'll kind of work on some other things. He will hold you accountable, and your intimacy will not deepen. You will not grow. You will not mature when you refuse to repent of the pet sin. Right? He is calling us to a penitent lifestyle, and it's for our good. Right? There is mercy, and there is hope, and there is release. There is nothing to be gained by holding on to pet sins. Right? We just easily lay them down, set them aside because of what we gain and who we gain in Christ. So let's pray. (sighs) 
Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth and the fact that you have been moved by your own merciful heart to make provision, to make atonement, and to make a way that we can draw near to you and to be reconciled to you, to grow closer to you. And Lord, the end of Joel's book and the end of Revelation itself ends with a picture of God dwelling intimately with his people. So, Lord, may we not wait, may we not sin, may we not be our own Lord and Master while we're here on this earth, but God, may we conform our lives to the truth of your Scripture so that the intimacy that is ours in eternity, it it deepens now. Lord, forgive us for our sins. Thank you for making provision for it. And in your mercy and in your patience, bringing us gently along. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.